This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? dramatic or like, sort of understated or what. This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome to this week's edition of Greening the Apocalypse through Triple future-focused, um, slightly fumbly grasp on reality, grip on reality. Ah, oh, Bushy's my name. Hope you're all well. In the studio this evening, Adam Grubb, how art thou? I art pretty good. I art pretty good. <laughs> That's, yeah, That's like if you English. were learning English yeah. and you weren't quite translating, like, I draw good, I art good. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh-huh. Jed McCartney. Hello. How you be? I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> good stuff. Um, we have a wonderful uh, show lined up this evening, uh, as opposed to those shows we do that aren't wonderful. Dr. Josh Healy. He is a Senior Research Fellow at the Centre of Workplace Leadership at the University of Melbourne with research interests in employment relations, applied economics and the future of work, including interests in how new technologies are reshaping the Australian labour market. And tonight we are going to talk about this and the gig economy. Welcome Josh. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks for the invitation. Thank, oh, thank you very much for accepting I, it. You missed out Exceptional Hill Bike Rider. Oh, Exceptional Hill Bike Rider. <laughs> We're discussing that out there. <laughs> That's under the radar. Crazy hills, though. <laughs> Mount Beauty type hills. <laughs> So we're going to talk about, you know, the future of work and, and one of your interests, the gig economy, like mm-hmm. ha- how things are, are changing at the edge of technology and how that's influencing work as we know it. But I was just, I was trying to get my head around before the show, like the old kind of Marxist breakdown of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Mm-hmm. That's, it's not, not a very perfect overlay of how things are these days, mm-hmm. is it? Can, do you have an understanding of a breakdown of the classes in society that's like a good sort of template for us to pick up and use throughout the rest of the show? Yeah, well, primarily one that's probably drawn from the work of others rather yeah. than from, from my own sure, work. Sure, sure. Um, but, I mean, in Australia, I suppose we've been... Uh, we haven't been that fond of class analysis. Yeah. Um, we've tended to, for some time, I think, sort of fancy ourselves as something of a, a classless society. Mm. Uh, and I think that's, that's starting to change. Mm. Um, I think more and more of us are kind of catching on to the real differences that do exist. Um, and I think our society is sort of um, breeding more inequality, uh, more differences in opportunity than it has in the past. Uh, and that's sort of connected, I think, well, I suppose my approach on that is to think of how is this connected to to work, right? And, of course, if you think about uh, the way the job market is changing, then there's a lot less stability in employment for many people. Uh, there, are, there are those lucky ones that have sort of lifetime careers and 
a reasonably sort of safe progression through pay, uh, who are able to then do all the other things that that security affords them, right? Like, so um, people with a salary. Yeah, salary, you know, some, some uh, expectation of, of job security, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of, often in, uh, you know, organisations that promise a sort of progression from, from, from low to high. And then there's plenty of other people, and it's probably around about, if you believe, recent uh, research on this, it's like half of all people that work in our country who are in some variety of much less secure employment. Uh, and so one way of thinking about this, I suppose, in class terms is through this idea of the precariat, right? So, um, you know, this has been a a new a kind of class grouping that's gotten quite a lot of attention internationally. And, and in Australia now, if you listen to uh, some of the campaigning that's being done by the trade union movement, by the ACTU, you know, they're picking up on, on this sentiment and, mm. and prosecuting this case around sort of change the rules, mm. right? And much of that is about the prospects of uh, this lower class, I'm doing the sort of scare quotes here in the studio, but this a, a lower class group or a, or a much less uh, secure group that might spend um, many years in, in some form of casual employment uh, without any prospect of that secure kind of hierarchy. So mm. For I the think, record, I just want to say, I think that should have been single quotes and you did the double. Did I do the double? Well, oh, okay. I well, mean, it depends. Yeah, as long as you're self-consistent. I don't think the grammar rules necessarily apply okay. here in this context. All I, right. I'm taking some leniency. All right. I'm probably, <laughs> probably being a little, you know, overly petty. Please continue. Um, so, yeah, I kind of think of it in terms of that, of that split that's happening. And if you think of, you know, somebody that's on that first trajectory, you know, they're, they, they've got some uh, opportunities available to them, things that they can do. And it's not just the the job market, of course. I mean, this feeds into uh, opportunities uh, or barriers, really, in other ways. Obviously, the housing market, uh, if you've got insecure employment, mm-hmm. uh, then you're likely to have sort of less secure housing tenure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can create, uh, well immediate consequences, but it can have lifetime consequences, okay? You don't have the same sorts of opportunities for for wealth accumulation. And we, we know also, and another really interesting thing from the research evidence is that um, more uh, unequal societies also tend to have less social mobility. So if you're... Is that self-referential? Well, no, no. So what I'm saying is that if there's a bigger divide between the rich and the poor then that tends to be inherited through generations. Okay. Okay, yeah, so it's yeah. harder for the children of, of, of poorer parents to themselves become rich. Yeah. Okay, mm. so the, that that inequality today mm. uh, erects barriers to opportunity tomorrow yeah. uh, for the next generations. And that, I think, is, is very... Um, lends itself to a, a very class-based analysis. So I think, I think that's coming back into vogue yeah. uh, and there's been good work done, particularly at the Australian National University uh, and other places, trying to tease out these, these new varieties of kind of contemporary class, mm. I suppose. And they think of, you know, at the top, uh, what they call an established kind of affluent group mm-hmm. um, who have had secure employment, uh, who are uh, able to afford uh, high-quality housing, close to job markets, uh, whose kids, you know, are likely to go to the best schools. Yeah. They're passing on that, that established affluence. The top of the top or just the this kind of the, salary class? Do you um, mean like the, the, rich, the super rich? Well, at the, well, there's a small group at the, probably yeah. at, the, at the, the super affluent class, if you want to call them that, 
time, but the the the, the elite, right? The yeah. the the well connected political class, yeah. um, the, the 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 corporate leaders, yeah. uh, you know, that's that. I, I suppose that's. Uh, much harder to peer into that class because it's yeah. smaller. Yeah. Uh, information it's about there. them, it's, they, it's undoubtedly it's influential. There. Uh, it's undoubtedly yeah. there, and, yeah. and in and fact, it's also driving a lot of this agenda. And mm. not even so much. I mean, that particular group that you're talking about, and not so much even a, you know, that they're on a salary or anything. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they they own the company, like or they yeah. sit on the, the board of directors for That's right. four or five influential positions, cartels, whatever it might be. I mean, it's not like a, they don't necessarily even draw a wage per se. No. It's just, no. It's been there for so long. That's right. No, no, these, these yeah. are not these are not the sort of uh, workaday mm. yeah, yeah. types, right? These are the mm. these are the, the 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 shareholding classes and the mm. the, the the owners, the capital owners. Yeah. Yep. So, and again, you know, back to class, right? So yep. this is. But this, beneath them, you're, them you're saying the the affluent class, right. who, who are doing quite well. Right. Oh, sorry, and, and then yeah, they're the and ones then, on the salary, and then sort of working your way managers. down. I suppose then, yeah, then you've yep. got you know more of a. A professionalized class, you know, a sort of a, mm-hmm. a middle class where you know most of these jobs are still good jobs. People that have a university le- level education mm. um, that that are able to sort of break into, uh, the, you know, typically the kind of corporate world um, or other, you know, reasonably secure sort of salaried employment. Yeah. And then you sort of work your way down through a, a more established sort of working class. Uh, where that would have been, you know, a much more sort of uh, labouring type or or factory based kind of employment. Um, yeah. You know, the blue collar kinds of um, trades based jobs of the past, of which we're we're losing many, many by mm-hmm. the year, as we we all know. And then this and then this new class of of precariat, where it's really it's really not clear um, yet. I think uh, what what the long-term outcomes for this group are going to be, but you certainly see sort of some worrying signs. So one thing that really caught my eye um, in the last couple of weeks was some work done in the United Kingdom that looks at um, the the amount of wealth. Okay, this is just one way of measuring things, right? But the amount of wealth uh, that young people, that is Mm. people in their 30s, who have finished their education, probably been working for a while mm. comparing today's say uh 30 year old group 30 mm. to 39 uh with those who are that age in earlier generations mm. and today's younger people have at the same age accumulated less less wealth right they don't they haven't then their ba- parents then their parents generation and their grandparents generation and even their grandparents at, right. the, at, the, yeah. at, the, at the same stage of life yep. okay so this was in the uk this say? is in the uk but and i haven't i haven't seen equivalent yeah. i haven't seen equivalent uh, data yet for Australia, but I yeah. wouldn't be overly surprised if if much the same sort of thing were happening here. So you're finding this thing where it's harder, and you know we've known for some time that uh, young people are. are deferring sort of um, stages in life progression, if you want to think of it that way, that, uh, you know, their parents and grandparents would have gotten to earlier on. Mm. So, you know, if you're doing these conventional things, then, you know, completing your education, uh, starting a family, buying a house, those sorts of things tend to be getting postponed mm. uh, so that we're doing them now later in life. And yeah. So and one then, of that is just delaying entering the workforce if you're... 
yeah. if you're doing more education. But off, oftentimes you don't end up with uh, a job that you studied for. You Correct. You might have a PhD, but you're Correct. driving I mean, Uber or whatever. Right. I mean, at the, yeah, that's that's at the extreme end. Yeah. And I sincerely hope there <laughs> there aren't too many of them um, around. The but, I mean, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure there are yeah, a few. Yeah. But even, yeah. even for... Uh, you know the bulk of of university graduates. I mean, I, I work at a university, and so we're kind of acutely tuned into this stuff. I mean, the graduate job market ha- mm. has changed in in not such rosy ways. I mean, it's it's now uh, not the the guaranteed safe path into the professional class mm-hmm. uh, that it once was. So we mm. see these we see more people. Uh, you know, bouncing around between jobs, trying mm. to find their foothold, taking longer to do that. Mm. And, and do you reckon that's a, an economic thing, so a product of our system or an attitudinal thing? You know, because we hear of all the uh, the, the millennials have a different attitude to, to life and to the world. Right. And, mm. and you know, they're... Walking around like they rent a place. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and everything's temporary and so, you know... Sorry. Yeah, whereas the... Um, Probably the baby baby boomers were like, "Oh no, we must must start the family and buy the house and save now." So yeah, is it attitudinal or is it economic? Well, I know that we do hear a lot about these attitudinal differences, and particularly the the millennials. I mean, I, I heard them in a presentation I attended recently called the the avocado generation, right? Referring to this idea that they prefer kind of consumption now uh, mm. to sort of. Uh, you know, saving and 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 doing doing the hard work of uh, <laughs> you know progressing progressing through those life stages. But actually, at least in relation to work, um, some of the evidence suggests strongly that there aren't as big of a differences as we've been led to believe Attitude, in yeah. attitudes. Right. Yeah. So if you ask young people today. Uh, you know, what are their life priorities? And this work has been done at the University of Melbourne. Uh, you know, one thing that comes out as strongly now on top of the list is job security. Mm. Yeah. Okay, and so people put it to me, well, look, you know, attitudes have changed and young people today aren't so concerned with with job security, with, you know, getting on that safe career path and doing all those conventional things. You know, that was that was their parents' generation. That was the conservative boomers. That's all gone out the window. But actually... The research evidence doesn't support that. They still highly value job security. So I think if we're talking about graduate outcomes, I think it is economic, mm. and I think it's you know we, we we've been in a bit of a we've been in a bit of a slump. I mean, again, this is this goes against some of the the mainstream kind of discourse that you hear in the day to day media. What we hear about is uh, the unemployment rate is low. And yes, the unemployment rate is low, but uh, if you twist you can, the figures, you, a bit. you can. Well, right, I mean, you can be employed on the statistics by just doing one hour a week, mm-hmm. right? So right. there are a lot of people out there that want to work for more. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of people, as Adam said, uh, that get degrees and then for a time end up doing something that doesn't actually match with what they studied. So there's more of this kind of mismatch going on and I think that 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 is an economic phenomenon I mean in the downturn that Australia had recently our it wasn't a recession but the sort of slump that we had like the rest of the world following uh the the global kind of recession that dragged down Europe and has continued to be you know problematic in that part of the world in Australia we had a bit of a slump but what you can see in the data is that that downturn in the job market was really visited 
particularly concentrated particularly on the youth labour market. Mm. So the, the job situation for young people uh, hasn't recovered as quickly as you would expect it to. So even though we've got low unemployment looking across the whole economy, uh, there's still these sort of um, lingering problems, economic problems, rather than attitudinal ones, to go to your point, Jed, economic problems affecting that that job market for young people. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the, you know, you, we shouldn't think this is just people that dropped out of high school. You know, it's, it's right across the skill Mm. Uh, uh, mix there. So it's affecting graduates as well. To what degree is part of it as well? I, th- I mean, okay, so if I think about my dad, who was born in 1943, and, yep. the, you know, the post-war boom, I mean, it, it was a post-war boom, it was incredible growth, but there was very, sort of very little change. Like, mm. you know, if, if you were building a house in over 15 years, you probably wouldn't see a great amount of new carpentry tools necessarily come out. It would be a saw, a hammer and a nail. Whereas now, um, I mean, I've got a couple of friends. They're not 3D printing houses yet. They're not 3D printing houses yet. No, but. but although that said, yeah, 3D printing technology new tools. I mean, I I know a guy I train with, and he's 17 years old, and he's got about six different things that he does. Mm -hmm. And he's got a very entrepreneurial streak in him. Um, But he also talks about the fact that there's things that are going to happen to him in the next five years that he doesn't, that haven't been invented yet. And and he's got a perspective on it that it's so different to what Adam and I would have had as kids in the eighties mm. and nineties, and and yourself, and um, and really different to our parents and Jed back in the nineteen forties, thirties. But so, to what degree can we look at the increased pace of technological change affecting the job market now? Because say when I was twenty, I I'd went and I, I jumped into an apprenticeship in my early twenties, and I, I'm still in that trade, even mm. though I've twisted it and reconfigured it quite a bit around what I do and how I do it. But if you're 22 now, there's, you know, even a, a trade apprenticeship might not necessarily be that stable all the way through to your whenever. Yeah. So is this part of the Oh, thing no, I, absolutely. I think so. That's right. Mm. Um, I think that's that's a really useful way of thinking about it, actually. I mean, I think that it definitely feels like... I mean, it can be hard to tell, right, because mm. we're kind of living through this period of change and it won't be until, you know, probably yeah. <laughs> probably we're all gone that historians will look back on this period of time and kind of pass judgment on just how rapid was the change. But yeah. I, I definitely buy the argument that, you know, te- it feels like the rate of technological progress mm-hmm. is is accelerating. Yep. I think two... two Big things have happened. Uh, if you think of these sort of, I, I teach a subject in some of this stuff and talk about this idea of sort of megatrends, which is a bit, you know, I, I don't know if that's quite the right way to think about it, but there have been at least two really big picture things. One of which is this increase in the pace of technological change. Okay, mm-hmm. that's and you know we've gotten very accustomed to this uh, in in those sort of blue collar type type jobs yep. that I talked about, like, you know, automation in the, in the, in the vehicle manufacturing plants, uh, on our farms, um, in the ports, you know, yep. th- these are things that we're now well and truly familiar with. But then you've got this wave of computerization and now we're talking about, you know, robotics and AI mm-hmm. and big data and all this stuff and it just feels like the intervals between those big changes shrinking. are shrinking, yeah. right? So that's one thing. So technological change absolutely I think is is is, is important, uh, has been and will continue to be. And the other thing is 
globalization, right? So what's happened is that we've um, we've opened up the job market that was once, at least in the Australian context, pre the mid sort of nineteen eighties, was a, a fairly protected. You know, our economy existed behind all sorts of trade barriers and tariffs, yep. and was a kind of um, was a kind of a sheltered. Uh, industry, at least in a, in a number of different ways, and all those barriers, or the, for the large part, have come down. Yep. Uh, so now, you know, job competition is 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 global, right? Mm. So, and and as things are digitised, and as uh, more job tasks kind of go online. That makes them. That opens them up to a world of of, of global competition, right? Yeah. And you know, uh, the the rising kind of countries. What we think of um, maybe a bit condescendingly as the still developing countries yeah. uh, are, you know, increasing their stock of skilled people phenomenally quickly, right? Yeah. And these are all people uh, that that are going to be able to compete uh, in 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 new areas uh, globally for for increasingly skilled jobs. So mm-hmm. we've talked about automation in the in the factories and on on the farms, uh, and many of those jobs uh, sadly have have gone from Australia. And now what we're facing is the prospect of further technological change tied to uh, globalization. That means more of these professional type jobs are at risk. Yeah. So I think it's it's not we're not at the end of that, that no, process it's, yet. It's a game and in motion. And, and so you know people are people are absorbing this message which i think is not not exactly a a comforting message that uh, you know you do have to be more adaptable uh, i'll use single quotes this time uh, <laughs> that's better <laughs> you do have to be more adaptable more willing to change more yeah. willing to retrain i mean some of the things i think that we're telling our young people are frankly they're new and i think in a way kind of um frightening really uh, around you know the number of different jobs that you might have over a mm. over a 40 year career we're not just talking about <laughs> doing more jobs and having changing jobs more but also uh, having longer working lives yeah right so we know that the population's getting older and more of us are likely to have to work for longer to yep. sustain ourselves in 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 older and older age I'm Joel Salatin, known as the Lunatic Farmer, encouraging you to tune in every time you can to the muckraking, compost-loving, cud-chewing, soil-building, water-cleaning vanguard of Urban Hillbilly Radio, greening the apocalypse on Radio 102.7, Free Triple R. Our guest tonight is Dr. Josh Healy, Senior Research Fellow in the Centre of Workplace Leadership at the University of Melbourne. If you're just tuning in, um, we were just chatting before that first track about some of the different class structures and some of the different attitudinal and economic influences on the workforce in Australia, as well as the effects of globalisation, the gig economy and a class of people called the precariat. We will continue on with that now. Adam, you wanted to open the next proceeding on that? <laughs> well, I was just, well, I don't know if we really did talk about the gig economy or the well, we, yeah, the, so the precariat well, is a broader let's talk term, about the difference. Right. We should talk yeah. about the difference between the gig economy versus the casual work. So, I mean, it's a, yeah. if, if I'm looking at it a little bit from the out, I, I was once employed as a casual worker where I feel like probably back then I was at the, the mercy of, let's say, the, the, the managers of where I worked. I could ring them up and depending on the mood they were in or whether or not I'd said something to piss them off, they could say, yeah, there's work today or there's yeah. not. Um, whereas the gig economy is interesting because so much of it's on the on- online space... That mm. it, it's 
is the bosses are the society that you're serving. So it's... Yeah, well, I mean, that's a good question, right? I mean, what what, what is the boss here, actually? Yeah, who is uh, it? I mean, who do you serve? What is the gig economy? Well, okay. Um, well, just sorry, just to f- finish what I was thinking about that. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is this is a variety of work that's done, uh, sort of dealt out on online or via via phone app, mm. um, where. You know, there's a distant. Obviously, the, the the these platform companies like Uber and uh, Deliveroo and Foodora and the like. You know, they they all have they all have owners ultimately, mm. uh, but they're very distant from the workers who are doing this stuff. Yeah. And you know, it's phenomenally difficult actually for uh, the the workers to uh, sort of band together or to sort of seek any kind of. Uh, collective um redress for for grievances be they around pay or or treatment or whatever because they're kind of um negotiating with a faceless kind of algorithm right it's like it's this so what we're talking about jed is you know basically a section of the economy where people are working as independent contractors uh and they're doing uh tasks that are sort of mediated by by apps like you know, if you want to get a ride with Uber, this is part of the gig economy, right? So the people that come around in their vehicles and pick you up and take you to wherever you need to go, this is uh, part of the gig economy. They're, they're workers who are doing this, uh, you know, in a highly, uh, you know, well, if you want to say it nicely, flexible kind of way, but um, <laughs> insecure work, right? Mm. Okay, and so, yeah, the gig economy is a one slice of... A much larger phenomenon, which is this idea of uh, insecure work or uh, more academically, I suppose, uh, non-standard work. Okay, so when we talk about standard forms of employment, we're thinking about people with basically uh, some security of employment. They generally have sort of uh, a salary. They generally have access to uh, paid leave entitlements. Okay, so you know you can take that holiday at Christmas time. Uh, you, you can take sick leave and so on, uh, and, and that's about half the workforce. And then there's this other half, which is in, in some form of of insecure work. So that includes uh, people who are in casual employment, like yep. you've talked about, uh, people that you know might be doing sort of uh, labour hire type arrangement. They're temporary workers of one kind or another, and then there's this small. Uh, branch of that insecure workforce that's the that's the gig economy and, and that's emerging and we're, we're st- it's emerging and yeah. we're still kind of coming to grips with um just how much of this there is um so so the main problem is that people by and large don't do this as their main thing mm. okay so if you think about the uber driver which is the the best known example uh it's the kind of work that lends itself to sort of being done on the side right mm-hmm. so mm. you might have another part-time job or even full-time job and you just do this for a bit of extra pocket change uh it's not really your it's not really your serious thing. Uh, it's just a way of, uh, you know, tr- tr- trying it out. You know, maybe you're paying the bills. Maybe you're a student. Uh, in fact, many of the people that are doing it are students uh, or they're new immigrants or they're people that have been out of the workforce for a time. Uh, but they're doing it, um, you know, typically just to supplement their income rather than uh, as are they're... Are they considered employees? Uh, no, definitely not. No, yeah, no, so you not... just get money through the app. And to become an Uber driver, do you meet anybody 
Or you just no. You just use the app to say, "I want to become a driver." Well, you've got to sign up to their contract, right? Yep. So there's a there's a kind of a pro forma uh, that sets the terms, and mm-hmm. of course, um, you know, there's no negotiation around that. It's yep. sort of a take take it or leave it proposition, uh, and provided you you sort of um, meet the capital requirements, that is, you've got a serviceable car, um, you've got the time, you've got a phone, you've loaded the app, and you've agreed to the conditions of mm-hmm. the Uber contract or or other. Companies companies like this then you can begin to do the work but it's you know it's zero hours you don't have any guarantee of anything uh-huh. i mean you know and your zero boss hours is a robot the, sorry and your boss is a robot and algorithm well yeah i mean well your like, boss possibly you, nobody in the company is even consciously aware of your existence oh no that's that's definitely right i mean you exist as a data point somewhere in a yeah. in a in a database mm-hmm. uh, you know you're you're one of the many people that exists within the the, the giant repository of information that basically what this does is a computer system that matches the people that need a ride at a given point in time and a given place uh, to people that are available in that area. Mm. Um, and that's all it does. And it's very, like, I mean, it's it's impressive. Mm. What it does is impressive. Uh, and for, for the consumer... Um, I mean, I, I think we can't deny that this is a very nifty sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, Uber, we wouldn't be talking about Uber if it wasn't a pretty clean sort of application, if it didn't do what it says it does on the, on the tin, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that people arrive and by and large, you know, barring the occasional misfortune or, uh, you know, misdemeanor, uh, mostly it does what's promised. It gets mm-hmm. people to the destination that they, they want to get to and does it um, cheaply, right? Yeah. But the problem from that's the consumer side, so I can see the appeal uh, and, you know, we've probably all ridden around in an Uber at one point in time and, uh, you know, it's now become sort of mainstream. But from the worker's side, uh, it's, mu- it's much more problematic for the reasons that we've, we've touched on. Uh, it doesn't give you any s- security. Of, of employment, uh, you're, you're certainly not an employee, so you're not entitled to uh, some of the standard things of employment like paid leave, uh, but also sort of superannuation entitlements, uh, workers' compensation, mm-hmm. compensation is ambiguous. Uh, so you've got to take out your own insurance, you've got mm-hmm. to do all this stuff, you've got to make sure that your books... You know that is that your your income is all above board and that you've got your your mm-hmm. affairs in order with the tax office. So you don't have an employer or an organisation mm-hmm. that's sort of standing bet- between you uh, and 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 the government or whatever other authorities are in the mix. And you know there are a bunch of regulators that are now starting to take a pretty keen interest in this gig economy, right? Because uh, they see that the there are there's at least if not the reality then the prospect of of violations of sort of accepted community standards mm. uh, and that might be around pay but it might also be well what happens if your uber kind of comes to grief and you crash who's liable mm-hmm. um, you know how much of that can then be traced back to uh, uber the entity the, mm-hmm. the company the platform owners uh, which are very much at arm's length from mm-hmm. from much of what goes on day to day you think this is a you know this is an American organization Deliveroo is a, a British organisation, but we see them on our, our streets. You know, it's very uh, prevalent now in our society, but, uh, you know, the, the ownership or the management, if you will, uh, is, is, is very distant and very hard to access. When you think about the, um, you know, the legal requirements to provide a safe workplace mm-hmm. as an employer and, you know, what comes with that in right. terms of OH&S and work safe protection and what have you, right. I guess none of that exists. No, no, I mean, that's so right. you're out in your little Deliveroo push bike getting in a few extra Ks for the week. Right. Um, 
and yeah, you can get <laughs> slammed out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess the other thing is if we talk about what the old or the traditional casual casualized economy, mm-hmm. and when I and thinking back to I think I was about twenty or twenty one, and mm-hmm. I ended up with uh, casual work for one of the big supermarket chains um, in their warehouse, but it also had the potential that after showing for a month or two that I was showing up and I was doing it. Right then, yeah. I got a more permanent spot. Right, and guys who were in middle management and senior management had started there. So there was this potential, if you wanted it, to take an upward trajectory right. in a company or in a workplace. U- Uber gig economy. That's you start at zero, and no matter what, you kind of start at and staying, you basically stay, stay at zero. Yeah. I mean, that's right. I think I mean many of us probably have that. I certainly have that same experience of working in in, in starting out in casual work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, typically this is the kind of work that is offered by, you know, big retailers, you know, the, the hospitality industry. Obviously, yep. there's a lot of kind of uh, bars and cafes and restaurants that are in the mix. But, you know, some of the jobs at least are available in these big organisations where, you know, they're just doing it at least in part as a way of, uh, you know, because they've got workers that, that at that stage in their lives, uh, you know, they're, they're often students, it, it kind of suits them to have that kind of, um, you, you, you are supposed to get a, a bump in your hourly rate of pay. So that's mm. one thing it's got in its favour. And then, yeah, then there's this structure, right? So you've got, you think of what sits behind that. Well, you've got Coles, you, you've got this mega entity that's got a collective bar bargaining agreement uh, that's got all these provisions in it um, mm. that certainly don't exist for uh, for the gig economy. So, yeah, I think there's still, and I've been sort of trying to start to think about this a bit, but because it is new, uh, we, we don't actually yet have enough time with the gig economy to know, well, what happens to people uh, down the track? You know, do, yeah. do, do, does the fact that you've done a little bit of this stuff for a time, does that do anything for you or yeah, is, is, it it good, just, is it good on a cv yeah does it look good yeah. on, do, do other employers sort of think highly of this experience or is it just uh something that you do for the pay and then it's basically forgotten yeah you don't even list it on your resume anymore because that was that was what you did before um i, I the evidence isn't in on that but I, I think there's not what we do know is that the, the structure that might come with allowing people progression uh, doesn't exist so the yeah. provisions around you know converting a casual worker to a more permanent part-time yep. type thing that exists in some larger organisations for sure doesn't exist in in the gig economy. So I'm not I'm not optimistic. I mm. suppose that it that it is the kind of the first step on a on a career ladder. Yeah. It, it, it also from the outside looking in, um, and I mean I, I won't just touch on this quickly. It doesn't also seem it doesn't appear to be that you acquire new skills or can specialise. You know, you know. So an apprentice plumber starts off. You know, they're cutting lengths of pipe. But by the end of it all, they can fix a whole house, do a right. whole building. You know, they're scalable skills. There's and they definitely can, a mar- marketplaces for skilled IT work and that kind of thing where I think people are building skills. So it might not might be difficult to generalise. Oh yeah, that uh, absolutely. One. I'm right. just thinking of like for an Uber yeah. driver. You, you know, yeah. No, it's not like at the end of it. You know, uh, Ferrari approach. You say, well, listen, based on your Uber review, we reckon you can race <laughs> at Monaco, Monaco, yeah. whatever. You are listening to a Triple R podcast. Podcast, etc. <laughs> We've been talking about the future of work, the preca- the emerging precariat, and the even more recent subset of that: the people who are part of the gig economy, which is Uber drivers and anybody taking short-term contract-type work, not necessarily even considered employees, mostly not. 
Now, it's easy to see some negative sides to this. Like we've, you mentioned, we talked, you know, how Australia's, the traditional proletariat, you know, just good, solid working class jobs um, have been hollowed out by international manufacturing and um, globalisation. There's a certain amount of race to the bottom in terms of both, well, yeah, worth uh, global work quality and, and pay rates that we've seen and now possibly this new kind of knowledge jobs um, and the international marketplace is pushing those down as well, mm. which is all part of the gig economy. Mm. In fact, my housemate recently got a, um, a music video made for five bucks on Fiverr.com by a guy <laughs> in Pakistan. <laughs> was it a good video? Yeah, he said he wanted more special effects. Yeah. <laughs> um, then he- for five bucks? Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. Um, so, so they're, they're, it's you a know, competitive market out there. Right? Price, Spielberg. <laughs> it's easy to it's easy to see how you know it's it's all negative this kind of stuff. But you did mention from the consumer's point of view, you no. know, Uber's pretty great, and there is this kind of like it is, you know, it it's the invisible hand of the market pushed to the extreme, and there's got to be some benefits for that in terms of efficiency of resource use, the best people for the best job. No. Do you see upsides to this as well? Well, I mean, in terms of technology or technological change, Mm. broadly speaking, I mean, absolutely. Like, if you look back, I mean, there's been fascinating work done in in economic history that looks at... um, uh, the the wealth of or the incomes of human societies, you know, going back thousands of years. And for literally millennia, uh, there was no improvement in average living standards, okay? And all the time prior to the first industrial revolution, people generation after generation after generation lived more or less the same way, okay? Mm. And then what happened is the industrial revolution kick-started this process of, uh, well, automation, technological change, uh, you know, serious social and economic change uh, that led to, you know, a progressive rise in in developed uh, countries' incomes, starting in, in Britain and then spreading to other parts of the world, including Australia. And we're kind of still on this trajectory, right? And I noticed, the way- incidentally, Bushy, who was a stonemason, that mm. um, the first eight-hour eight yeah, work week, week pretty up. much in the world, or eight-hour eight work day was um, won by Melbourne stonemasons in eighteen. 18- 56. Mm. Right. Going back further to that, stonemasons used to be told, you know, lay off the booze and get your hair cut and everything. They said, well, do you want that church built? (laughs) 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 Good time. Yeah, so actually there's a nice plaque on the wall in the old quad at the University of Melbourne that commemorates the the masons walking off the job on that day in 1856. Yeah. they probably would have limped off the job, but they would have suffered incredible injuries back in the day. Yeah. 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 I mean, so, but one thing in thinking about technology, so we can think of this as in, in the aggregate, one of the important sources of our prosperity, right? How yeah. do we raise our living standards? It's by getting, as you said, Adam, you know, getting more efficient at doing things uh, through, through innovation, which, you know, technology is in the, in, at, at the leading edge of. Um, you know, one thing that technological change has, has done over time is to get rid of some pretty bad jobs, right? Mm. So we shouldn't forget about that. Um, you know, a lot of, I mean, if you do think back to the, the first industrial revolution, I mean, 
there were horrendous working standards. So although this begun that process of, of rising incomes that I spoke of, uh, you know, you think of the working conditions uh, back then that, that none of us today uh, in, in Australia or any other rich country uh, would ever want to even contemplate doing, right? So, mm. so, t- so improvement in technology uh, eliminates some jobs that are, are, are dangerous, um, that are dull. You know, we've done away with a lot of, a lot of tedious sort of work um, that's been automated. You know, you think of a lot of sort of um, particularly uh, tasks that were done in, in, in sort of factories, uh, but also, you know, plenty of uh, unpaid labour in the home uh, that's been automated in one way or another through, through uh, improving technology. So I think that's, um, you know, you, you see this process of change that yeah. um, that certainly has has good sides to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, but all of that, and we talked about this earlier about the sort of um, accelerating pace of change. You know, every every new technology um, has its sort of um, disruptive potential. Mm-hmm. I kind of hate disruption because oh. you know we talk about it ad nauseum now, but I think it's right in that context. Yeah. It can it can. Um, you know, it has consequences. Some people will lose their jobs. Uh, I mean, I think the more serious consequences of technological change are around how we share the benefits. Mm. Okay, so it's one thing to say that um, on average incomes rise. Um, that's great. Uh, but it's not so great if um, all of the benefits are channeled to the top end of town. Yeah, uh, we, we have part of the average. Yeah, mm. right. So, And we have had this kind of lopsided process of change recently where what you're seeing is uh, people that uh, own the means of production, uh, that own uh, capital in the form of machines or or stock and shares, uh, you know, have done pretty well. And it's been at the expense on average of, you know, the, the, the share of the total. So if you think about total income in our economy, um, the share that's going to uh, ordinary working people, uh, people that are employed, uh, that rely on their wage labour uh, mm. for their for their income, uh, the, the total amount of income that's going to that set of people in the population has been in decline and more has been going to the, the, the kind of capital owners. So and the political implications of that, yeah. you know, like the Italian election earlier in the year, right. just it was, you know, probably the, the most perfect example of it where you've got things going, I guess, to the far left. They're a bit mixed, but in the five-star movement and then the league quite, you know, far right. Right. And the middle's completely hollowed out, and that's got to be a large part of the. It's it's a it's a outcome of exactly what you're talking about, right? right. The, the precarious nature of our future, and yeah. in terms of our our work, and the that huge uh, delineation between the rich and and this new right. underclass who yeah. who aren't even proletariat. No, no. So we we sort of talk in terms of. Uh, I mean, we in in sort of. Um, academic sort of discussion of this stuff talks mm. about this idea of polarisation, mm. right? So if you're at the top, you've done pretty well and there's been some, you know, significant growth and we've talked about some aspects of that mm. at the at the very bottom. But that, that kind of the stable middle class, mm. you know, the reliable lifetime sort of jobs... Uh, are, are just much, much harder to come by and, mm. and we've really shrunk that segment. And, yeah, look, I mean, you think about, um, you know, all sort of implications of that, of that inequality politically, I think that's, that's absolutely right. Mm. Um, you know, the, 
the the idea of the ninety nine percent you know yeah. was very much motivated by by this uh, realization of the the inequality in incomes mm. and in wealth. Uh, you know you might view um, more recent election outcomes in the United States and uh, you know decisions made in the UK as in one way or another mm. you know a response to um, you know increasing political alienation that that people sort of left behind mm. uh, by this process of rapid change are feeling. Mm. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.